everyone to the Anagram Journey podcast with the Anagram Godmother, Suzanne Stabile. My name is Joel, and today's guest is friend of the show, friend of Suzanne's, author, speaker, and activist, Brian D. McLaren. The Anagram 4, who has brought so much to the world, including the great spiritual migration, naked spirituality, he is also a faculty member of the Living School over at the Center for Action and Contemplation. The man wears a lot of hats. And in this episode, he's going to sit down with Suzanne and wear the hat talking about his newest book, Faith After Doubt, Why Your Beliefs Stop Working and What to Do About It. It's a good book. And you know what else is going to be really good? Breaking the Cycle, an Enneagram event, August 5th through the 7th, with the Enneagram godmother Suzanne, the Reverend Joe Stabile, and the incredible Russ Hudson. How can we break the pattern of our false self? Allow our passions to fall away and our virtues to rise. Begin to recognize our unconscious, emotional programs for happiness, naming our fears, angers, and shame, and begin living a better life. Come find out with me, because I don't know yet, August 5th through the 7th in Dallas, or you can join online from anywhere in the world. All participants, both online and in the room with these incredible teachers, will have access to the replay for two months as well. You can visit lifeinthetrinityministry.com, suzannestabile.com, or theanagramjourney.org to find a link, or you can click on the link in the show notes. You won't have any doubts about that decision. Thank you all for listening and for your constant support of the podcast, LTM, and Joe and Suzanne. Now let me send it on over to Brian and Suzanne. I've had the opportunity to be with you in a lot of circumstances in a lot of places. And the one thing that I would say is true about you without question is that you always ask why. You always ask why at the end of somebody telling you who they are or how they got there, or there is always a question that leads to the next sentence or the next paragraph from them. On top of that, you are one of the best speakers I know and usually really good speakers are not really good listeners, but you are. And I felt like your new book, which we're here to talk about, Faith After Doubt, is uh, an expression of many of those questions and many of those hours that you listened while people answered you. Mm-hmm. And it makes me... Um, hopeful anytime somebody models asking and listening. So I have a lot of hope for this book. You and I have been having conversations about part of it for a long time. Part of my hope is that people will read between the lines how many times you stopped what you were doing ask people to tell you more and then patiently listen to all they did. Well, that's super kind of you to say, Suzanne. Uh, And I'm, you know, I'm just always so happy to be with a dear friend like you, but something, you know, because you're such a great listener is that you you learn a whole lot more when you're listening. (laughs) And I think one of my, uh, I hope I'm, I'm motivated by love. Uh, for people, but I think I'm also motivated by curiosity, and I, I always just think I there's more to learn. 
But this book, um, because I told so many stories uh, from people whose, I just felt, you know, this story captures the issue so well. It's been really interesting to hear from people. There's an old saying, I, you might, might know who said it, what's most personal to me is most universal to you. And I've had so many people call me and say, that story you told in chapter six, that was me, right? <laughs> and I was like, no, it wasn't you, it was somebody else. But you just realize how our stories really do overlap and we find points of connection. Uh, when they called you, did they actually say the story in chapter six? Um, I mean, I just use that as an example. But... Well, it's a good one because I'm going to ask you about the story in chapter six. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't want to go there yet, but I have that marked as one of the things I want to talk about. <laughs> you open with 65 million adults have dropped out of church attendance in the United States and that we add 2.7 million more every year. That's astonishing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what's been going on these last few years, I think is going to accelerate that significantly. I know it is. So, yeah. It is certainly um, part of our experience with Joe pastoring in the United Methodist Church. My question, and I don't know if you have the answer, and then I'll get to more things that I want you to talk about about the book, but my personal question to you is, if in dropping out, where are people going where there will be a common experience that holds us together? You know, th- there's been a, a lot of writing about this, that people are finding ways to sort of cobble together the elements that they used to get in a one-stop shop by going to church. Um, you know, so people join CrossFit and CrossFit becomes this group where they're, they develop deep relationships and people, you know, there, there've been all of these different activities, podcasts, in some ways, podcasts like this, there, how many people used to go to church, but now they listen to a podcast every day on their commute to and from work. And they feel they're getting way better information in a way more accessible and efficient format than they used to get in sermons. So, you know, I think people are, cobbling it together. But one of our problems, there are so many, and and I'm grateful for that. I'm not complaining about that at all. But one of our problems is where this leaves children, because one of the things for better and for worse that happens through church involvement is children grow up in a faith community where they're introduced in some sort of systematic way to virtues and to, uh, you know, moral codes and, and ideals and so on. And one of the things that I think is a little scary is that those numbers, 65 million, 2.7 million every year, means that an awful lot of children um, aren't getting uh, anything really organized in the way and and intentional uh, beyond maybe what their parents can pull together and that might be enough. But uh, uh, so I'd say some of the needs are being met and some of the needs aren't. It's an interesting perspective for both of us now because we have these beautiful grandchildren that we um, deeply love. And uh, Joel, would you share with Brian just for a sec what you're doing with your children with the LTM prayer beads? Yeah, we, so I don't know if you've 
seen them, but the Reverend wrote out a prayer on the uh, nine fruits of the spirit and some prayer beads that have uh, either a cross or an L team charm or something at the end. And then an opening bead, the nine beads and a closing bead. And uh, Winnie and I and the kids are doing that continually uh, after dinner or in the morning or, you know, just kind of whenever we can and they're, they're involved. And from the two-year-old to the 11 year old, all four of them are, are really into it. It's been a lot of, it's been a great experience for the six of us. What a great thing. So there's a perfect example of creatively filling some of these gaps. And I think to myself, at the, for, for your kids, Joel, they're going to know those nine fruits of the spirit, not just know them as a list of things, but they're going to have learned to cherish those as virtues and as character qualities that they want to live and I'm just thinking there's probably a whole lot of kids that went to mass every Sunday or Sunday school every Sunday. And by the time they were 16 or 18, they didn't even have that. You know what I mean? They they didn't have those nine things deeply embedded. So that's beautiful. Can I spring a question? I had no clue we were going to talk about this, but can I spring a question for some advice or help from the two of you (laughs) around kids and Sunday school and church? We, so everyone knows we've got the blended family. So kids are coming and going all the time. And every weekend, they're not at the same household. And we got a, an email from the church that we're members at saying, hey, you know, church camp's coming up for summertime. And it's going to, especially after last year, no one getting to do it. You know, people, it's going to fill up quick. And so I was so excited because I went to two a summer when I was younger uh, and always had a really great time. And so I was talking to my daughter about it and she was just like, no, no. And talked through it. And I was just, you know, just be open to the conversation, please. Mm -hmm. And then I was talking with Whitney yesterday, though. I said, I don't, I don't blame her. She's very shy. Mm -hmm. And because she's not at this church every Sunday, she didn't go to school with the kids, all those things. It's hard for her to get some traction in those groups. And so I was like, I don't really know what to do because I do want her to want to do these things and to be a part of this group and community. But I also understand where she's coming from. You know, what comes to mind when you say that, Joel, is just that um, by you recognizing that your daughter is shy and that, you know, going into a new setting where she doesn't already have relationships it sounds like the only way this can work is to try to help some relationships develop or to maybe find a group of her friends who could go together so that she wouldn't be going into a new situation. Um, You know, it it seems to me that becomes the only way to make something like that uh, uh, doable. I think she'll get there. She's, Mm -hmm. she's, she was growing socially and then, they've kept her home for school for a year and I think she'll get there again. She just might not get there by this church camp, but I think she'll be there by next year. And Brian, just so you know, the youngest grandchild uh, knows all of the fruits of the spirit. And she always remembers the one that I always forget, which will not surprise you is (laughs) self-control. So, (laughs) 
she usually ends it with a scream of it. Self-control. That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, so great. That is okay. Um, to, to go a little deeper, pretty quick, let's, uh, would you be willing to talk about the four stages sure. of faith development? That's a big part of the book and um, an important place for us to yeah. take the conversation first. Yeah. So I always like to give a disclaimer as I begin to say that stage theories can be super useful and they can also be abused. So, uh, you know, I, let's enter into it with that, that awareness. And I should also say there have been so many great theorists uh, about stages of faith development. But if you want an example from the Bible, even many people are familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, which often gets read at weddings, even though it wasn't written for weddings. Um, and, and in that passage, Paul says, when I was a child, I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. I spoke like a child. When I became an adult, I moved on, you know, to, I put certain things behind. So there's this idea that we all know that we go through stages in life. And um, so this is a, a, an attempt to simplify a whole lot of theory and models and literature in a very memorable um, uh, four-stage model. And they are simplicity, complexity, perplexity, harmony. And as soon as you hear those four, you realize, oh yeah, we would always start with simplicity. Then life would get more complex. And eventually that complexity would be overwhelming. So we would experience perplexity and we'd have the potential maybe to find some harmony to bring it all together coming out of that perplexity. Um, way to think about it in terms of faith. Simplicity is faith before doubt. It's the faith that we inherit, usually from our parents, grandparents, teachers, and so on. Um, and so, you know, when you're a child, you don't know what foods are safe and what things are poison. And you don't know, uh, you know, you need some authority figure to tell you things that you just don't know that could kill you. Um, and so we have this attitude of trust as children. And we know that even though we might get mad at those authority figures sometimes, we know we need them. So there's this sense in simplicity, there are authority figures and they give us simple answers. Usually they divide the world into twos, us, them, in, out, safe, dangerous, friend, enemy. And we can call that dualism. And that's what simplicity is about, learning the, the rules, the dualisms from authority figures. Stage two, and, and I should say, I think a lot of people, especially in the world of religion, stay in simplicity their whole lives. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, as I've anticipated our conversation, um, Suzanne, I'm going to guess that some Enneagram types would find it way easier to stay in simplicity their whole lives. They would have a love for that simplicity. It would bring comfort to them. Whereas other people, they would be so ready to move beyond it and they would get impatient with it very quickly. Um, and that brings you to complexity. And complexity very often happens when a kid goes away to college and he starts meeting kids from other families or maybe even summer camp. And you, you start meeting people from other families and you realize, oh, my family has this set of rules. That family has another set of rules. There are more than one set of rules out there. I've got to learn how to negotiate a lot of different rule sets. And that's where life becomes more complicated. What's interesting though, is you still maintain this certain sense that, okay, I can manage this. And these are legitimate different sets of rules and these are legitimate authority figures. There's just a lot of them you've got to navigate. That's complexity. It's kind of pragmatic. I want to make life work. 
and I've got to deal with a world bigger than my family and bigger than the world of childhood. A lot of people stay there their whole lives. And I think a lot of religions are really set up well for stage one and stage two people. But more and more people are coming out of stage two, even by the time they finish high school. Uh, and this is uh, the stage of perplexity where we go back and we say, if simplicity was faith before doubt and complexity were faith was faith negotiating doubt, trying to deal with doubt, handle doubt, manage doubt, Stage three is when faith actually comes into doubt. And I start questioning what those authority figures told me. And I start in engaging my own critical thinking. And I start bringing other authority figures who will critique my inherited authority figures. And, and this can be a super difficult time for people who are in a church or a family that only allows them to be in stage one or stage two. They have no capacity for them in stage three. And, um, and then I think more and more people and, and more and more people stay in stage three the rest of their lives and they're suspicious and they don't really feel they, anybody is worthy of, of trust and uh, they feel they can see through everything. But I think there are more and more people who through spiritual practice, through good parenting, through great teachers, um, our mutual friend Richard Rohr says through great pain, through great love, we might also say through in-depth travel, we, we, we move through this world of perplexity and we start to see things whole again. And um, we start to be able to integrate the skills from the earlier stages. So if we think of that harmony stage as a stage where we develop empathy for everybody and where we develop uh, a desire to integrate the skills of each of the earlier stages, I think that would be a good way to think of harmony. You know, I, uh, of course, am thinking about Enneagram Sixes, which we've been discussing for years. Yes, yes. And um, I, I did a podcast with a lovely Six, who's a therapist here in Texas in Austin. And her, her name is Leslie, and she's done quite a bit of work. And she said, I trust my doubt. Yes. Where do you put that in the four yes. stages? yes. So here's, here's, as I've thought about the, um, as I've thought about the different Enneagram types, but especially about sixes, uh, if a six grows up with very strong parents who tell them the only way to think is to think in simplistic categories, I think a six is going to want to be loyal to that. Um, but if it starts to fail them, the six is going to have to, in a sense, have private permission. I guess people often use that term, loyal opposition, that they'll remain loyal, but they'll have an, an internal sense that I don't totally buy this. Uh, or when I'm not around mom and dad, I'm not going to say what they expect me to say. And I think, um, and I think I can completely imagine six as becoming the ones who in a sense become the champions of doubt because they're suspicious of being misled. And I don't know if this is the appropriate word, but bamboozled, you know, or <laughs> taken advantage of by authority figures. Uh, so. Yeah. You know, she also said it's so hard to break loyalty once you've given it. Yeah. And I think um, when 
people were trying to talk me into riding the road back to you. You know, I was pushing back a lot on that yeah. whole idea of a way that I might be called to do something. And, and somebody told me that they thought evangelicals at that time, which was 2015, 2016, were ready to hear the Enneagram because they were looking for a way to communicate with their parents in a way that was respectful of their parents' belief, but built a bridge for them to be able to express what they believe that is different. Yeah. And I don't know if the Enneagram is always successful in doing that, but I think sometimes it is. But I think people run into a big problem when they think the Enneagram is going to solve something by itself. Yes. It's lovely, but by itself, it's not much, actually. But actually, I was thinking about that because if you took the Enneagram, which has to do with capacities that we all have, and then preferred ways of negotiating these different capacities, habitual, preferred ways that end up feeling natural to us and, and in some ways make us feel like this is me, this is the way I operate in the world. And then we were to overlay on that an idea of human development, stages of development. Um, it, it could actually enrich both, right? Because realizing that people are different, uh, people have different habitual patterns of response and that the stages of life evoke different challenges for us uh, or introduce us to different challenges they really could be enriching. It'd be interesting to think of those four stages. What would an Enneagram one be like in each mm-hmm. of the four stages? And what would those transitions be like? I'm especially interested in stage three because I think it's where so many people join that 65 million um, who, who drop out. They come to stage three and they can't find a faith community that allows them to be honest about the, the struggles and questions and doubts they're having. Um, and so it, it, it could be interesting to take all nine Enneagram types just in relation to one stage and think that through. Well, maybe we'll do that one weekend. Maybe we'll do a long weekend event together and I'll that do what I so do and you do what you do and we'll see what happens. I think that would be so much fun. Let's, let's make that happen. <laughs> well, my, my way of seeing, of course, and thinking is the Enneagram. And so when I'm reading the book, I keep seeing Enneagram numbers in the yes. stories in the book. Yes. And um, I'm also uh, coming to you with questions from a place where I'm married to a United Methodist pastor and for those who don't know, that's a denomination that is in, in the process of splitting. It's like not we're gonna someday. It's yeah. happening. And there is a pretense that it's happening around one issue. Mm-hmm. And the pretense is that they can't agree as a, a unified body on all of the questions that have to do with our brothers and sisters who make up the queer or the gay community. And I started listening really closely about three years ago, and I don't think it's all about that question. Yeah. 
I think it's about other questions that people can't name. Yes. Does that fall somewhere in these stages? You know, one way to say it, in fact, Methodism is an interesting example because if you go back in English history, when Methodism arose in, in England, we'd had the Protestant Reformation and we could say that we had stage one Catholics and stage one Protestants who were ready to kill each other. And then the Protestants started splitting with each other. So the stage one Presbyterians and the stage one Baptists were at each other's throats and everything was all or nothing. And everything was our authorities, our authority figures and our authority structures or nothing. And so it was this all or nothing kind of dualism, right? And when you think about what the Wesleys represented, they had a method. Method is pure stage two. And in fact, they said that there were these four things, the Methodist quadrilateral of scripture, tradition, reason, experience. And now that might sound very simple to some of us, but that was a lot more complicated because they're saying there's a process here. And if you hold these four values in the right way, so in some ways, Methodism represented stage two spirituality. It came to America. And I think Methodism has always been a stage one and stage two spirituality. In certain settings, it could just double down. And, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but, you know, Methodists were at the forefront of prohibition. And, and when you're fighting to outlaw alcohol as if alcohol is the biggest problem in the world, interesting, slavery was going on and, and Jim Crow was going on and, you know, uh, segregation lynching was going on, but you can see how focusing on alcohol would be a wonderful way to simplify the world into a stage one fight. Yep. Um, so I think Methodism has been stuck there. And then what happens when young people go to seminary to become Methodist ministers and they get exposed to stage three. Uh, and so to me, the, it becomes a useful framework to see the current Methodist troubles uh, playing out. Well, you know, it's almost like it's in the DNA. The yeah. first question that Joe and I are asked as a pastor and pastor's wife, when he's appointed to a new church, quietly before yes. we're invited to any social event, the question is, do you drink? Interesting. Yes. Because they all do. Yes. And they want to make sure not to drink in front of us if we don't. Yes. And then I say only straight tequila. And then it's a whole different <laughs> ballgame, right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Okay. You said that doubt is the passageway from each stage to the next. Yes. And then you go on to say that without doubt, there can be no growth within a stage, but growth from one stage to another usually requires us to doubt the assumptions that gave shape to the current stage. Yes, just to clarify, within a stage, you don't need a lot of doubt, but to cross from one stage to the next, in a sense, you, you, you go through a doubting process. And one way to say that would be, if you're in stage one, and for example, if you're evangelical, uh, you're taught that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, and it has an answer for every question. It is the total trustworthy and only necessary source of uh, infallible authority. And so you're working in that framework in stage one. 
Um, and you've been taught that the pastor of your church fulfills the biblical contract for what you need in a leader. That means you need to believe what your pastor says. Um, and then you start having real problems with that. You, you can grow a lot within stage one if you just keep learning everything your pastor has to teach you. But when you run to the end of that, when biblical inerrancy stops making sense, or when you think evolution makes a whole lot of sense, and they're telling me I can't believe in evolution, now you're going to have to go through not just a change of opinion, but you're going to have to doubt the whole system you're part of. Something similar happens for Catholics. There is an infallible magisterium, an infallible uh, authority structure, and they receive from Jesus Christ what Jesus Christ wants to give us. It's their job to teach. It's our job to believe. And then you say, hold it. I don't think that they're, what they're doing is right. And now it's, you could learn a whole lot when you were working in the system. But when you start to doubt the system, that's going to be, yeah, that's going to be a, ch a change of stage. Because it threatens everything, doesn't it? It yes. threatens everything. When yes. people uh, ask Joe and me about uh, his leaving the priesthood and, and um, about the vows he took and about celibacy, and then Joe explains that celibacy was not originally part of the deal and that it has everything to do with land ownership and money, actually. Mm -hmm. It is so threatening to people yes. to hear that. Yes. It's like the truth is so threatening, but yes. the reality is that in the Catholic church, priests have to be celibate because the priests before them had to be celibate. Yes. Right. There's no, there, there is no. So do you think we just have now generations, maybe a generation and a half of people who are saying, I, I'm not just going to receive everything you say as truth. I'm going to think for myself, Yeah. which we've been teaching children to do for two generations. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And is this the result? Well, here's a, here's a way to say it. Um, for, if we take Catholicism, I, I think use of contraception is slightly higher among Roman Catholics than non-Catholics. So the church is saying, don't do it. And people are just saying, look, I'm a good Catholic, but I don't go along with that. Yeah. Well, you're not really allowed to, to do it that way. But then the, the institution has a decision. What do they crack down on and what do they tolerate? And so then the, the institution makes concessions, right? And, and this happens for all of the Southern Baptists who drink, right? And when they weren't allowed to drink or whatever. So, so yeah, the, this is part of institutional life, but it's that your story about celibacy and the priesthood is such a great example because in simplicity, you are told this is the way it's always been. This is God's will. And then you learn in complexity to study history and you find that, oh, it wasn't always that way. And you find that the reasons behind it. And while you're in stage two, you're going to say, um, you, you'll come uh, up with some way to try to reconcile that new information. But when there's enough of that new information that makes you say, this can't be reconciled, uh, that thrusts you into stage three, where now you're going to say, I got to figure this out on my own. I've got to have critical thinking <laughs> engaged. And this is going to require me to be critical of this organization that has shaped me. You know, something similar happens with our with our parents. I think, you know, children grow up with 
parents with serious problems, could be mental illness, could be addiction, could be raging temper. And when you're little, you think it's my fault because they're the parent. You get a little older and you try to keep it a secret. You try to manage it, but you get to a point where you say, we got to talk openly about this. And I've, I've got to stop pretending that this wasn't the case. You know, I, I can't be honest anymore unless I do. Which uh, in part is happening with the gay community saying, I, I just can't lie about this anymore. I can't deny myself the opportunity to be who I am anymore. I can't, I just can't. Yes. And it makes me very, very sad that the church is not a safe place for that, but that's, it isn't. And so are different denominations in different stages of faith development? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Um, and, and there are all kinds of reasons for it. Some has to do with when they develop. Some has to do with how long they've been around. Um, some has to do with histories of breaks and sectarianism. But it might help Christians to look at Judaism, um, kind of mainstream Judaism. It's been around a lot longer than Christianity. And in mainstream Judaism, you know, they, they aren't really bound together by a set of beliefs. You have a, sect of, a sector of Judaism called Reconstructionism, where believing in God is discouraged, uh, at the very best optional, but really discouraged. Um, uh, but nobody questions whether they're Jewish. Jewish still means something, even without a, a specific belief in, in uh, a God, right? Um, and so you realize that groups over time evolve just like we do as people. But um, there are other groups that have a, you might call it a binge purge or an expand contract cycle where they become, maybe they start at stage one, they grow into stage two, they grow into stage three, they maybe even have some people in stage four, and then they have a purge and the stage one people kick out everybody who's not in stage one. And, um, and so there's that, those, kinds of, uh, those kinds of processes uh, at work. You really can just see it playing out in history. And in fact, in Methodism, I think you see it, uh, you see it playing out. And then add, you brought up money, add money, and then add politics. Um, and then you start to maybe get a really complex picture, but it starts to make a whole lot of sense. Okay, I'm going to ask you an Enneagram question about you as an Enneagram 4. So when I was first getting to know you, gosh, it seems like we were a lot younger then. <laughs> I was first I getting we to know you. I guess we were. <laughs> I asked you, um, what determined your decision to leave ministry? And you said to me, I uh, knew that I had to leave when I no longer believed the answers I was giving to questions that people were asking. You were very successful in worldly terms at what you were doing. You were well-loved and it's never perfect in ministry. So if anybody thinks it is, that's wrong. But what was it, your desire for authenticity as a four that fed that in you? Yes, yes. I, I'm sure the answer is yes. And I should say, Suzanne, that my reasons for leaving the pastorate, there were many different levels, sure. you know. Um, and, but here's maybe a way I could say it. I was incredibly fortunate in that 
the congregation I led went on that journey with me. Um, but I felt because I was writing books and I was getting out speaking. Um, if I were to put, if I were to only focus on this one congregation, maybe, maybe here's a way to say it. I needed to move faster to, I needed to keep moving faster in my journey to be able to help my peers in ministry. And if I were to move faster, that would be bad for my congregation. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I could bring my congregation along that fast. And I didn't want to have to live a divided life. And I think that is a very poor thing to say. And another four dimension of it is because I was writing books and I would go out and speak and people would take me out to lunch and pour out their heart. And I, that empathetic dimension of being a four, I couldn't forget about their pain and I couldn't forget about their problem. And that's what made me feel I needed to move faster. If, yeah. I, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. It makes total sense. And it's, um, I think it's the reason in part that fours make lots of moves in their lives. Mm. I think when you're searching for authenticity in a world that isn't yeah, in order for you to have peace with your own uniqueness and with yourself as a four, you end up kind of on a path where if you're going to make it in your life to where you're supposed to go, you can't bring a bunch of people with you yeah, because they just don't understand you well enough for you to bring them along. And, and, and it's not, not because either part doesn't try. Yes, that's right. And, and they're not doing anything wrong for no. being who they are, where they are. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. It, it's uh, scary for other numbers to commit to the kind of authenticity that many fours are committed to. And it's like, no, I, I'm, yeah. I don't want to do that. I can just walk the middle here. Yeah. I, I can kind of make it in the middle. Yeah. And, and thank God not everybody is as tortured by that desire for authenticity <laughs> as fours. It, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, the world would be a, a, a more chaotic place. <laughs> because of everything that y'all just said, do you think that there are fewer fours in church now and they're a larger part of that population that are leaving or is there not, is there maybe not a correlation to that? Well, I, I think there probably is a correlation, but I think the situation in many of our churches is so complex and conflicted right now. I can see reasons why churches would drive away ones and twos and threes and fives. And, you know, I just think they're the whole thing right now is, is in this situation of disequilibrium that where a whole lot of people are, uh, are it's not working for them anymore. You know, uh, uh, do you think, Brian, that, that it has anything to do with the fact that we have to maintain this way of thinking or we're going to lose? Yes. We're going to yes. lose people. We're going to lose money. So we got to maintain the status quo because if we don't, it just messes up everything. And, and we set up this through our fights for market share over the last 500 years. We, you should join our church because we are the most biblical. We are biblical in this way, this way, this way, this way. And then somebody comes along and they, says, they say, we aren't so great. And those rules that you've set up that make us look so great, I don't think they're that important. We should be about something else. Well, th that's not just like going from pianos to guitars. That's like 
having to rewrite the whole contract of why you exist and, and what you're here for. And, and add to that issues of science, right? And if you were to just take the issue of science, think about what it's like to be a five who really gets science and, and goes to church and sees that they're not willing to face the facts and science. That would create a whole set of reactions in, in, in a five, right? Or, uh, or in, in a two who really loves people and cares about people and they watch the church not care about people, their, their, their gay, their gay uh, relatives and friends or care about immigrants or whatever else. And the two would just say, you know, that evolution stuff might not bother me, but man, this bothers me. So. Okay, uh, can we talk about the story in chapter six? Yes. Okay. I was so surprised when you said that. I thought, does everybody talk about the story in chapter six? <laughs> you write, talking about somebody else who was talking to you. My wife and I used to be Catholic, he said. Then we got born again and spirit-filled and joined the Assembly of God. But we found out they had a whole lot of rules, like no drinking alcohol, so we switched to Presbyterian. We enjoyed being Presbyterian for a while, but then my wife got into an argument with the pastor because she didn't like how he interpreted the Bible. So she became Methodist for a while, but then she had problems with that pastor too because the minister performed secret weddings for gay people. Now she's something called independent charismatic. <laughs> and then you, in your typical way, said, you're still Presbyterian because <laughs> you were trying to keep track of uh, when we switched to he you said. And um, he said, no, I felt like our religion bus was making too many sharp turns. So I pulled the cord and got off after Presbyterian. I guess I stopped seeing the point. What do you suppose his wife was looking for that she couldn't find in any of those places? That's a great question. That's a great question. I met her, I didn't know her well. Um, so I'd be going mostly from what the impression I got from uh, this fellow who I, I named Walt in the book. You know, if I were to make a guess, I, I would guess that she was, she could have been a seven who was really looking for fun people to be around and um, and was looking for some some emotional sense of uh, being okay. Um, and I, the one that really interested me was when she got mad at the Methodist pastor. Like, you know, the idea that you go to a church and they wouldn't let you drink alcohol, has, we're out of there, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think when she, this Methodist pastor was, uh, this is before, you know, gay marriage was even legal. So he was performing secret weddings, you know, for, for, uh, for gay people. I, I have a feeling that she, her circle of friends were a certain kind of conservative politically and were a certain kind of socially conservative. And the, for her to be part of a group that would be an embarrassment to her friends, I think was not a good thing for her you know i keep wondering when people go from church to church and even faith belief to faith belief 
if they're looking for something that the church never had to offer. Mm. It seems to me that in stage four, there's a chance that you stop looking for certitude. Yes. And there are an awful lot of people who are looking for that. Yes. So true. So true. Yeah. Is that answered by faith? Is part of faith that you don't have to be certain? So isn't it interesting that we often think that the opposite of faith is doubt when probably it'd be more logical to say the opposite of faith is certainty. And, and here's the interesting thing. You can be certain and be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so when, you know, certainty is not all it's cracked up to be, but it is very desirable uh, for a lot of people um, because the act of saying, I'm not certain, I don't know, um, causes anxiety. Now, whether it would inherently cause anxiety, and I'd love to know what you think, whether it might cause more anxiety for certain Enneagram types than, uh, th than another, that would be interesting. But here's where it really becomes a problem. When your religion taught you that one of its promises was certainty, um, when it gave you what we might call bomb-proof certainty, it gave you an, a perfect foundation, whether it was the Bible or the church. And then if you just built certainty blocks on, on those, you'd build a structure of certainty. The church promised to offer that. And, you know, I think there were a lot of Catholics who, when the church said, you, you can eat meat on Fridays again, it was like, this causes a faith crisis because, hold it, you're changing the rules. And we, li we liked it better when it was stricter because it was more certain. I would like to know where in the stages you think resides the idea that for me to be right and for me to be in, there must be a group of people who are wrong and out. Yeah. 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 That, um, I mean, that is a stage one uh, assumption that erodes in stage two is overturned in stage three and is just not necessary in stage four. So it's really a deep stage one assumption. But here's an interesting thing. Imagine if you had a priest uh, or a pastor or parents who are in stage four. Um, they would teach you stage one in a different way. They wouldn't, they wouldn't teach you in stage one that you, they, their simplicity would not need an enemy. I don't think it is, it's a necessity for, to have an enemy in this way. I think it is normal because most of the people who set the rules, that's the stage they were working out of. Um, you know, Those were my parents. Yes. My parents were stage four parents. Yes. Who, um, and I think in part it was because, you know, my dad told me one time, that he was interviewed for a newspaper uh, and they asked him the greatest invention in his years of practicing medicine. And he started practicing in 1921. And he said, window screens. And he then said to me, telling me that story. And he then said, and I've seen us put a man on the moon. So I've learned that what I can think isn't even close to what is. 
Yes. Yes. And so from that perspective of parenting me, I got to doubt and make mistakes and they were like my safety net and they let me make decisions and it's a different place, isn't it? But that's grace for me. And I understand all these systems that are put together that people grew up in where you are either good or bad, you're right or wrong, and you're going to hell or you're not. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. And that can't be anything in line with what Jesus wanted. Yeah. Yeah. It, I don't know. I don't know about religion. It makes me, I, I'm excited about the book because people ask me what to read. And now I can say this, read <laughs> Faith After Doubt. That's what you read. But you, you are so wise in that you tip your hat and give them permission to doubt yeah. because that's where so many people are. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, I know it can get better, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not quite sure uh, that, that much is going to happen in my lifetime. Yeah. It's, it's probably smart to have uh, low expectations. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, high hopes and low expectations. <laughs> Which make, now that's another challenge. So talk about what's mine to do then. Yeah. Joe and I are in our early 70s. So what is ours to do for our children and our grandchildren? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, this to me is, is where I, I wish I had something better to offer you in this, except to say, this is the struggle that I feel too, um, Suzanne. I, I, I think for people who can simply be who they are in stage four and not keep it to themselves and not be afraid of upsetting people, but just are, be themselves, uh, not needing to convince the stage one people to agree, but just to be themselves out loud, I guess is what I'm saying, or to be themselves without shame, maybe is a better way to say it. Uh, To be themselves, (laughs) look, to sound biblical, to not hide your light under a bushel. Mm -hmm. That seems to me to be one of the most important things. I, I, um, I think I tell a story in the book. I have this memory of, you know, being this young, zealous, a college student who was in stage two and I was sitting next to this sort of famous theologian at a dinner and I must have been trying to impress him, you know, with all that I knew and all of whatever. And he, um, at some point he just turns to me and says, I knew a lot more when I was your age than I know now. And what was so great, you know, my mind just blew. But what was so great about that was he didn't explain himself. He, he didn't ask me. And he just dropped this little bomb. And, you know, it bothered me enough that I, I thought he's sort of criticizing me. He's sort of telling me I'm a know-it-all. <laughs> but he did it in this totally unoffensive way. And he just, he just was himself in a different place. He was uncomfortable. He was not uncomfortable. Or let me say he was comfortable in not knowing. Yeah. Um, and, and that was this uh, blessing, you know, that he gave me. It didn't solve my problems. In fact, it created problems, but it let me know when I'm older, I might see things differently than I do now. 
When I was leaving for SMU as a freshman, we were sitting at the breakfast table, my mom and dad and me, and we were driving to Dallas in two cars. And uh, my dad was having a bowl of cereal as he always did. And he looked across the table at me and he said, you know, I hope you really enjoy this year. I, I just want this year to be so great for you. And I said, well, I think it's going to be. Why are you saying that? And he said, because you're smarter right this minute than you will ever be again. <laughs> oh, that's so great. Okay. So great. What? I, I have two big questions, overarching book questions for you. And one is, what questions do you want people to ask themselves while they read the book? Mm. I think... If I could boil it down to two questions, it would be, what's my work in, in the stage where I am now? Um, what, what important work do I have to do to, to not move beyond this stage until I've done this work? And then the, the second question would be, and what's next? Um, what should I be preparing for? Because if we do have this idea that we, we do want to mature, we do want to grow, we don't want to just get older, we want to get wiser maybe, um, that would be it. Uh, not how can I get to the next stage as soon as possible, but how can I do my work now? And then when I'm ready, what's, what should I anticipate? You know, what, I wish I would have put this in the book, um, but you know, a great example to, for what I think we need in the world of faith is what they have in karate and judo. Uh, uh, if you study karate, you always begin with a white belt and you know there's something called a black belt. And your goal isn't to wear a black belt. Your goal is to become a person who has earned a black belt by first doing the white belt skills and then learning the yellow and the orange and the green and blue and purple and I think brown and then black. So, but you know, it's the sense that there's work for me to do now and, I, and I'm a beginner now and I want to keep going in the process. That's, I think, what we need. And unfortunately, what happens in religion a lot is that we end up with this sort of destination disease that, mm -hmm. um, oh, I've got to arrive. I've got to be there. I've got to be born again, saved, uh, confirmed, uh, spirit-filled. You know, And we want to just get there so we can say, oh, good, now I'm done with all that pesky growth. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I've darn. Arrived. I'm certain that I'm, I've arrived. So can you give an example of what work would look like in the first three stages? Sure. Well, in stage one, I mean, learning that there's such a thing as right and wrong and that I actually want to do what's right. So learning how to tell the truth is a pretty big deal, even when it hurts. You know, learning how to say, whoops, I just lied. I need to admit it, you know. Uh, that sort of stuff is basic stage one stuff. Um, I would also say exactly what your dad said to you in stage one. And this is one of the ways that religion malforms people. Religion tells people in stage one, you know everything you need to know. Whereas I think one of the important lessons of stage one is there's always more to learn. I need to be humble. That's why those, you know, those uh, beads and going through those nine fruits of the spirit it, it sets you up in stage one to say, I've got a lot to learn. So that would be stage one. Stage two work would be. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. But, so on stage one, um, it, it would be the temptation 
of people, I think, who are trying to be wise to say, oh, I used to be there. I used to be there. And I I just would caution against that because as I was reading the book, it was clear to me that there are ways that I'm still there. Like I haven't just left and gone on. I, you know, I can remember, I, I said publicly for several years, you know, I'm tolerant of everybody except people who are intolerant, (laughs) (laughs) which is almost everybody, right? Yes. So I was really aware that I was kind of, okay, well, I'm not there anymore. So I'm going to read on. Yes. And then I called myself back to that and said, well, I'm mostly not there. Well, it's, and it's one of the important things I, I say later in the book is that I think when, if you, if a person gets to that fourth stage, it's not that they've arrived. That becomes your new simplicity. And, and pretty soon you're going to get a new wave of complexity, but you know, here's the interesting thing. When that's your new simplicity, you're still going to be tempted to lie because you're going to be around people who, you know, will judge you if you let them know who you really are. And then you have to have the courage to say, okay, I got to take my stand. I've got to, you see what I'm saying? It, it, you're presented with a whole new set of dualistic moral decisions. That's right. Do I lie or do I tell the truth? We're, we're never done with, and that's why to me, the best metaphor is it's not like you're going from Texas to New Mexico to Arizona to California. It's like rings on a tree. And so you never are done with stage one, that basic, basic moral work. Yeah. I love the analogy of the rings on the tree because it also becomes your core. Yes. You know, you were building, you're building off of what you learned in stage one. It's not something that you discard. Yes. Okay. Stage two. Well, uh, stage two is things like showing up for work on time and, you know, keeping your promises and doing your homework and, uh, uh, and the ability to master new skills and, and get things done. You know, that, that, that's basic stage two competence, I think. And, um, and again, we're, we're never done with that. But and, but, and some of us realize, you know, probably the time I really could have learned that was when I was in my teens and 20s. And then I was so high for those 15 years that I really never got that. And there might be times where people later in life have to say, I've got to go back and do some remedial work that I missed <laughs> uh, first time around, you know. Would you say that stage one involves uh, more uh, thinking about what other people say and think? And in stage two, maybe people learn most from folks who are modeling this mature behavior? Yes, I think so. Um, in, in a sense, in stage one, we inherit our beliefs. We didn't choose them. Mm-hmm. And we inherit our authority figures. We didn't choose them. You, you know, you have no choice if you're brought up in a Christian family at age five, you can't really become a Buddhist, you know? So it's going to be, but if you grow up Buddhist, you can't really be a Christian. You inherit the set of authority figures. That's something that happens to every person one way or another. Um, And so this stage two becomes this stage of independence. I, I now have some space for myself to think for myself and start making some choices. You know, there's a, a, a parallel dimension of this, Suzanne, 
in, in racial identity theory. And for me as a white guy, I, I became very interested in learning about this some years ago. And, and if you think of it this way, you know, whatever race you grow up, you grow up with its set of privileges or prejudices or advantages or, or oppressive experiences. And that's normal for you and, and it forms you and you don't get any choice in that. But then there, people reach a stage where they say, okay, I've got white skin. What am I going to do about it? Okay, I've got black skin. What am I going to do about it? Okay, I'm biracial. How am I going to negotiate that? That negotiation stuff is the stage two stuff. It's really important work. Yeah, and I think it must be very difficult to have no guide to get yourself from stage one to do the work to get to two, yes. to do the work to be able to bridge to three. One of the things I love about this book so much is that um, as I've known you over the years and as I've read you, your writing reflects what you're wearing as a human being. Mm. And you've been wearing faith after doubt for a time. And I think people need models. Mm. So one of the things that I want to encourage, of course, I want everybody, everybody to read this book, but I want them to read previous work where you were embodying a different part of your journey because I think there are so many young adults who are trying to find their way who don't have any models. Yeah. Nobody's modeling behavior for them yeah. that sets the table for faith after doubt. Mm -hmm. And so doubt just builds on itself. Yes. People yes. just doubt and doubt and doubt. Yeah. So is the faith inherent once you allow yourself to doubt, is, is there this mystical safety net that's going to give you enough faith to go a little bit farther? I think that's the crisis that a lot of people experience in stage three, because all it for, not for everybody. I, I don't think it was this way for you because of your parents, but imagine people whose entire faith package was so thoroughly a stage one product and they stretched to get into stage two. When they get to stage three, it won't stretch anymore and there's nothing left. So for those people in stage three, I think for many of them, it feels like my life had meaning when I was in stage one and it's meaningless when I'm in stage three. Mm -hmm. um, all I have is what I've lost. All, I'm, all I know is what I'm against. Um, and and I, I'm not criticizing that at all. That, that's a real experience for a lot of people. And it's not their fault. It's, it's just the inevitable result of the package that they were given um, in the beginning. It's not that different from the kid who grows up with a really vicious, dysfunctional, hateful father. And then suddenly he becomes a father and says, I don't really have the tools here to figure out how to do this. And you've got to go find some other models. Mm -hmm. And that's where communities become so important because you say that religious community that I was from has nothing to offer me now. They actually have nothing to offer me except damage and trauma. Mm -hmm. So now I've got to find some other group of people where there are people who embody something different. You know? I would just really encourage people to read. We make our way by walking because that's, mm -hmm. Uh, that's part of what sets the table for 
finding those models and finding that community that has another elder in it who can offer you something. Somebody asked Joe and I what we were doing with our lives and Joe said, we're just trying to, we're walking around just trying to be old people that young people want to talk to. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. I love it. And I, I, I want, um, we certainly don't have all the answers, but we're real good about the questions. And, and I, I want people to be able to answer this question. All right. Well, so take me the, I'm sorry. I have so much to ask you and talk to you about the book (laughs) that uh, now we're at stage three, right? Stage three. What do people need to do? Critical, critical thinking, honesty, fearlessness. Uh, They have to be willing to stand up. Uh, This is the stage of protest and this is the stage of, uh, of seeing through facades to what's real underneath. Um, it, it, it's in some way, it's, it's our inner investigative journalist says, I really want to know what's going on here. Uh, and yeah, it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of persistence. It takes uh, fearlessness because there's going to be a hundred people telling you you're bad for questioning this or that. I mean, you, you think... You know, I, I was reading recently about an amazing 19th century figure, a woman named Sojourner Truth. And she would get up in front of white people and she'd say, ain't I a woman? Meaning, ain't I a human being? Now, the courage it takes when everybody is putting you in some, you know, three-fifths of a human being at best, you know, and she says, Look, I'm standing here. I'm, you know, that, that's that kind of courage that I think. It, and and there's maybe, I think there's a lot of anger in stage three that's very very legitimate, where you become angry when you find out. I went through all of elementary school, and I never knew about the Trail of Tears, and I never knew about what happened to the Native peoples. I learned about Abraham Lincoln. Um, solving the civil war, I didn't really learn about all those people who set the stage for it, you know, and, and you, there's a certain sense where you have every right to be angry. And, but how do you manage that anger? I think that's important work of stage three. You know, there's that, that cliche of the angry young man or the mm-hmm. angry young woman. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's in, it's in a sense, that's part of your work in that stage. Now, how do you handle it? because there's ways to become hateful uh, through it. And there's ways to become so reactionary, you never recover from your being reactionary. And there are ways to think, because I'm angry at those people, that makes me a good person. Right. Uh, but that's not, your work's not done when you're there, which then comes the stage four work. Yeah, and what's the stage four work? Well, how in the world do you learn to love those stage one people and not hate them for being where they are? How do you learn to understand the, the struggles that they're facing? And how do, you, how do you learn to not just look at those stage two people and think they're so shallow, all they care about is success. They're so shallow. But saying, well, no, they, have, they are shallow, yes, but they're also learning some skills and, and, and that's where they are. And how can we let people be where they are? There's a certain sense of, of appropriateness, you know? Uh, you know, I think about myself and my work with the church and my stage three work, it was very easy to get angry 
why do these bishops not show any courage? Why do these pastors play the game? Why don't they speak the truth, you know? And then you realize, well, because they're human beings and, and you realize if that pastor tells the truth, his five major donors will stop giving, which means he'll have to fire three people on his staff because the budget will go down. And it's not just that he's afraid of those five major donors, it's that he cares about those three staff people who he'd have to let go. And he's been through this thing before and he knows how these things work. And okay, you know, I, and, and here's the interesting thing. It's not like it's okay because you still have your stage three self that sees the problems that come from those kind of compromises. But, um, but I think in stage four, you have the skills of stage one, the skills of stage two, the skills of stage three. How do we integrate those now? Because there's a certain sense, especially in stage three, you're just so pissed off at all those stage one and stage two people. You don't really see much good in them at all. Um, and now, and you don't really even care if you sometimes might lie or steal or cheat or something because compared to the bad stuff those guys are doing, you know, I'm, I'm fine. Now we start to try to integrate. So I'm finding a good analogy for me to be that I spend time in all of the swimming pool. Yeah. Like sometimes I can hang out in the deep end, but we had a conversation with a young woman this week that we're going to continue to talk to about human trafficking. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm in water that is so shallow. It's not covering my ankles. I don't know anything about what we're talking about. Yeah. I know nothing. And, I, and that is no longer threatening because I have faith that I can learn. So, all right, what's your hope? For everybody who reads the book, what do you hope? Well, I, I suppose, I hope that they will feel that they're not crazy and they're not alone, that, that they won't feel shame for being honest and for having a brain and for, uh, and for going through the growth process. So that relief, I hope. Um, something else I dare to hope, even though I'm real, I think I'm realistic that it's not easy, is that more faith leaders, current and future faith leaders, will try to imagine what a community would be like that helps people through all those stages and that is led by people in stage four so that they teach stage one, stage two, stage three in ways that naturally lead to the others. Mm -hmm. um, I just got a very moving, heartbreaking email yesterday morning from a pastor. He said, I just read your book. Thank you so much. I, he said, I think I believe that those stage four communities are possible. But he said, I won't quote him exactly, but he said, I'm too effing tired to try mm -hmm. to get there. I'm just so worn down. I'm so beaten down. And I, you know, I understand that. I understand that feeling. It's one of the reasons I think we constantly need new generations to rise up because there's a 19 or 22 year old kid who's just going to, this is going to be his baseline of, of course, this is what it means to be a spiritual leader. And uh, she or he will maybe be able to create some of those spaces going forward. Yeah. You know, I think some of those leaders are, are uh, in the wings and uh, our age group has trouble moving over. Don't we? Yes. yes I would yes, love yes. for more of, people in my age bracket to step on over and just at least share the platform they have with people who are younger, who have 
so much to teach us. So much. You know, it's, it's funny you say that because you mentioned earlier about when I left the pastorate and I, I had this deep loyalty to the to this particular church that I pastored and to the idea of church in general. And it was one of the things that gave me permission to move on. I, I, I said to myself, I've been doing this for 24 years. Maybe it's somebody else's turn to get a fresh start, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, I think that's, that's part of growing up, isn't it? It is. And I think, I think it'd be so great if we can move a little before we're so effing tired. Yes. yes right. Yes. Yes. So we can still be a wisdom figure for whoever follows, but not, not be in charge anymore. Yes. I think that's all possible. I think it's all possible. And, you know, so, I think those things are happening, even though we've got a, a huge mess on our hands. I think those things are happening. I think so, too. Uh, I can't like you more than I do. I can't respect <laughs> you more than I do. Uh, I can't enjoy talking with you more than I do. So I hope everybody enjoys listening to our time together and can learn from you again in your new book, Faith After Doubt. I think it is brilliant. And I think one of the big gifts is it has a big payoff at the end. And that is there are uh, what I would label three, four, five appendices for uh, somebody who is a four with a five wing and then a little three. <laughs> 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 because they're so great. And I am particularly interested in number three. So I want everybody to see that if they don't see any of the others. And it's the integration of stage theories, because I think it helps them fold what they learn in your work in with other things they may have heard. So it doesn't appear contradictory because you show uh, eloquently that it isn't. Well, and I just want to say how I, it's just always such a joy to be uh, with you, Suzanne. And, and Joel, always great to, to be with you as well. And, you know, this Enneagram work, in some ways, one of the things it does, I think, is it helps people move through these stages because it helps them see there's not just two kinds of people, good people and bad people. So stage two, we start to learn those different uh, stages. And then stage three, we may, the great thing about the whole model is that it helps me face sort of shadow sides and and, and realize that the good and the bad are interwoven and, uh, and maybe brings me to a place where I actually start to appreciate everybody. And I think that the whole is, uh, is beautified by all of the parts. So, yeah, I think we're cooking up an event here. I was going to say, y'all, y'all made the choice of mentioning that, uh, on the podcast. So get the calendars out because people are going to Emails are going to come in. Hey, when is this event with Suzanne yeah. and Brian? All right. Well, I'm in, Brian. You in? I'm in. All right. Thank, Thank you, Brian. Brian.